Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, I'm really excited for this week's guest. As I mentioned last week, when we were talking to Mark Gable of the Australian band Choir Boys, we're going to keep it in Australia this week as well. We're talking to David Sterry, lead singer of the incredible 80s synth-pop band Real Life. Now, everybody knows Real Life from the song you're listening to right here, Send Me an Angel. It's evergreen. It's still out there being played somewhere today. This was actually a hit for them twice in the States. It was released once in 1983, went top 30, and then remixed and re-released in 1989 and went top 30 again. They had one other top 40 hit with Catch Me I'm Falling, in the States anyway, but that was pretty much it from a pop chart perspective. They were always, at least during my formative teenage years, they were always ever present on the alternative radio stations. In fact, this is a really surreal conversation to have for me because, like I said, these guys were just ever present in my teenage years. I kind of can't believe that David talked to me. Now you would think if you were the person behind a hit song like Send Me an Angel, that you would be set for life, and yet that was not the case. He's as candid as he can be logistically in this conversation, but basically for about 20 years there, he was not able to capitalize on the success of this song. In fact, there was a period there when you would think his life would be the best, when he could not make a living as a musician, which is mind-blowing to me. Think about this. Think about how many times you've heard this song in your life. And now multiply that by the millions of people who could say the same thing. And yet, David was not able until the last few years to live comfortably on his creation. Thankfully now, he's as happy as he's ever been. Real life, very happily perform on the 80s nostalgia circuit around Australia. He's got his publishing sorted out, so he's making money off this and all of his other songs. It is so good to hear. I really love David a lot. and. It's crazy to me that Salt Lake City is one of his favorite cities to party in, believe it or not. We talk a little bit about that. And this is another one of those conversations that I, I feel a little conflicted because on the one hand, I want to tell the artist's story, but on the other hand, I could have just shot the breeze with him about the music we both like at the same time. Hopefully, I kind of covered both bases. Great guy. He called me from his home in Melbourne, Australia. I've actually become slightly addicted to your, your podcast because um, you have? I'm finding that I'm, well, I'm a little bit time poor, you see, and I'm finding they're a little bit of a guilty pleasure because they're at least always an hour long. So I've been listening, and so it's my little reward, you know. I've only, I've only listened to three. I've listened to um, Ben Watkins from Juno Reactor, who I didn't oh, know yes. very much about because I love yes. Juno Reactor. And uh -huh. uh, Neil Taylor, I, because I love the, the Tears of Fears guitar song, but what a beautiful uh -huh. guitar player he is. He's a, oh. such a tasteful guy. Yeah. And this morning, I listened to uh, Rollo McGinty from the Wooden Tops. So there you go. <laughs> so, and oh I can't God. work out what to listen. I can't listen what to work out next. But I have to do. I have to complete some work before I <laughs> do any more. <laughs> wow. Oh my gosh, my my head is exploding. I'm so mm. I'm so impressed. Thank you. No, it's a, um, it's a great show. It's it's really one for musicians and people that you know that want to hear other musos stories as well. Because I found that when you've gone through you know, through a lot of your career and all the the good and bad happens to you, it's nice to know that you weren't the only one that all that kind of bad happened to, all the good happened to. And yeah. that's, uh hearing everybody else's story, we've all got pretty much the same things happen to us. It's very true. And honestly, it's my way of kind of, I want to honor 
the people that I care about. I mean, I don't know how often you get told that you've made a difference in someone's life. You know, again, going back, Mick Jagger hears that stuff all day. But I don't know that mm. real life gets to hear that very often. And so, uh, pretty much, because I'm, I'm always at, you know, working actively and performing. Yeah. Actively, and people always have a story to tell me. That's the interesting thing that I find, and most musicians will tell you that, that when someone comes up to you and says something, they tell you a bit about themselves. They tell you a story about um, yeah. you know, what happened when, while they were listening to your songs. And I've got some, some funny ones and some you know, not-so-funny ones. But, yeah, it's good. I, I love it. I'm, I'm very honored with it. I don't let it go to my head. I don't feel... I yeah. I'm the person they're actually talking to. They're talking about the person that they think is the song, which isn't me, really. So. Oh, interesting. I will tell you, I don't know, are you, I assume you're probably a David Bowie fan? Oh, of course I am, yeah. Okay. Of course. One of my yeah. favorite of the episodes that I've done was with Robin Clark, who sang briefly with Simple Minds in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was this American black lady, kind of a soul singer, who sang with them on... Alive and Kicking and Sanctify Yourself, mm-hmm. that really big period for them. Well, she's married to Carlos Alomar, who is mm-hmm. David Bowie's guitarist. And I interviewed him, mm-hmm. too. I loved it, but it, it didn't. I didn't feel the same connection. But with Robin, they were friends with Bowie for 40 years. Mm-hmm. And so she let me yeah. just ask whatever I wanted, and I just, whatever came off the top of my head. Anyway, there's some really interesting mm-hmm. information in there if you like David Bowie. So. Oh, I'm going, I'm going to be uh, listening to that one for sure because I'm a Simple Minds fan as well, of course. I remember when, sadly, the, the shocking news came out. I, uh, over here in Australia, I work with a bunch of other singers and we kind of go out as like a review. There's, there could be, you know, it's a, it's a floating lineup of Australian singers that have all uh, had big hits here. And we go out mm. and sing our hits and then we do a couple of covers cool. as well. But when Bowie died, of course, we all had to do something. And I remember one of the guys saying, we were, we were doing Heroes. And uh, we all, you know, wow. had to learn a verse and, and do this and do that. And uh, one guy summed it up perfectly. One of the singers said, look, I'm not worried about remembering the words. I'm just worried about not crying while I'm singing. So mm-hmm. it was, you know, very, very, very emotional true. time for all of us. Yep. Yeah. It was yeah. rough there for a while. Very true. Oh, shock. Well, state of shock. Thanks for doing this. You probably, I mean, if you've listened to some of them, you get the gist. This is just a brief conversation. Yep. I have some things I'm, I want to touch I've on. My financial, I've got all my financial banking statements here and uh, my best and worst stories. <laughs> <laughs> I have some things I want to ask about, but we go where we go because this is meant for you to uh, There's only one place I sort of can't go. And um, when we talk about sort of what happened, I own the rights to our first two albums of Semi and Angel and the, the Lifetime and uh, sorry, uh, Heartland and Flame albums here because we were signed to an Australian company who likened oh. to an American company. And I can talk about all that from my aspect, but I can't talk about a settlement that, that I finally got with an American company. It took me 20 years. And oh, wow. part of the agreement is I can't go into details about that. I can sort of say okay. that, hey, I didn't actually get anything, but I opened the channels. But So that's a, a bit of a long and hard story anyway. So I bet. Okay. So, first of all, I want to let you know, I'm originally from Salt Lake City. You're aware that you're still fairly big there. Um, oh, yeah. I, mean, I love going there. It's a great place to go. It's so 80s up in Salt Lake City. It's fabulous. <laughs> yeah, they just they still love their 80s music. And, in fact, I've been watching. There's most of a concert that you did in Salt Lake, I think, in 2004 on YouTube. Oh, okay. That, that's the last time I was there, actually, yeah. Yeah. I, I've been listening to that to get a because I can't find your Imperfection album online anywhere. 
So I'm listening to a lot of the live tracks through that concert on YouTube, and it's great. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Salt Lake is a great place. So you know from me being from Salt Lake that I would have grown up listening to real life from the very beginning because they've always been on kind of the 80s synth pop tip. So I got to know, I mean, this is an obvious question. How would your life be different without Send Me an Angel? It's a blessing and a curse in some ways, I'm guessing, or do you see it completely as a blessing? Uh, pretty much a blessing, mostly a blessing. It, it, it gave, gave real life the keys to the world, actually. you know, um, mm-hmm. if, if you told me, uh, gee, real life had been together three years when we, uh, until we finally wrote that. We'd, we'd gone out and we'd never played a cover song. We insisted on trying to write our own songs, and we wanted them in that sort of new wave genre with guitars with synthesizers. Finally, we came up with that. And the people around us, record company and management, sort of said, oh, look, you know, it might be a bit of an okay local hit, but that's about as far as it will go. And we kind of accepted that as well. So when it kind of took off around the rest of the world, it was amazing for us. And it was really our keys to the world and got us to travel. It's amazing. The songs had a life of its own. People used to ask me, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, have you found that angel yet thinking it's a girl? But mm. for me, uh, the song has been the angel. The song has been my angel. Mm. It's um, given me a life mm-hmm. that I would never have had otherwise. So. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe you've worked through this. I mean, it's been, what, 35 years or whatever now. But mm-hmm. does, yep. did you? was there ever a period where you were frustrated that it overshadowed anything else you were doing? Or have you always oh, been course. really proud? Yeah. And Okay, so when, when was that period? And, you know, how do you deal with that? I guess it was the period was like, you know, the rest of the 80s and the early 90s where we were very determined to kind of get on with our career, you know, sort of go on the journey that that, um, a band is and writing songs and making albums is a journey. And uh, it it did overshadow things, especially it became a hit a second time around. It became a hit again in 1989. Was that not your plan to do that? How did that come out? No, it happen? wasn't our plan at all. No, it was. Oh, man. I, 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 may, I may have helped in, um, unsuspectingly helped a bit when I heard an, a remix by Quincy Jones of New Order's Blue Monday, which is one of my all time favorite oh. songs and yeah, inspirations. No sure. And I never particularly loved the way Send Me an Angel sounded. And, and you know, so I said, oh, well, gee, I wonder what a remix of Send Me an Angel would sound like. And. Lo and behold, it happened. Uh, Curtis and English guy called Nigel Wright, and it became a hit all over again, which was totally um, unsuspected. And we had no idea yeah. what would happen. Yeah, mm. that's incredible. I have to admit, I love that song. I've always been a bigger fan of Catch Me Up Falling. That was the hit that you don't still hear all the time, so it's a little more, 
you haven't, not that I'm sick of Send Me an Angel, but you know what I mean. There, there's still some magic left to it because you're still discovering I do, yeah, it. I do. Yeah, yeah, I do. I, I love that song too as well now. You know, I, I didn't particularly love it in the first place. I kind of finished that one off just to get the band off my back, you know, going, oh, really? we've got this new piece of music. Yeah, this new piece of music, you're going to love it. Of course, I immediately hated it. Just broke something really quickly, but it's a clever song. It's, I mean, it's yeah. um, the melody's are all right, the hook's are all right, you know, the words are all fine. I didn't particularly like it, and then it became a big hit. And I'm like, but I love it now. <laughs> wow. Wow. So, I mean, i got to ask, I mean, could you... I think I might know the answer to this, or at least be able to do, to deduce what it is. But could you do nothing the rest of your life and live off "Send Me an Angel" royalties, basically? Oh no, 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 no. Oh really? Um, no, not at all. Um, we went through some dark periods. Well, back in the day, we were signed to an, directly to an Australian record company, and then they licensed us to the rest of the world. The record company was also our manager and our publisher. It was a complete conflict of interest at the time and the record company ended up being bankrupted around you know the time mm. second send me an angel came out so we always had a problem you know getting any accounting at all whatsoever so it was a liquidated company i had to fight the liquidators for about 20 years to oh. kind of uh sort that out so money was always a problem or the publishing side of things was signed off to warner chapel that have been very good to me uh, over the mm. years and so okay. that's always kind of come through, but there's never been any artist royalties, so that was never an option. But that's I'm at a point now where I'd, I'd sorted all that stuff out, and uh, there's new avenues of income, you know, little bits of income here, there, and everywhere that I've done different little licensing things. And Angel is always covered and covered and covered every year, at mm -hmm. least a half a dozen times. So between that and my live work, I'm working live all the time, or as much as I can, I love it. I have a nice, modest living where I can just purely live off my music now. But that hasn't always been the case. So, but it's oh, really? in a really good spot now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. fascinating. So I'm assuming that because you basically put out three albums in the last 25 years, that mm -hmm. you were in a position where you didn't really have to keep making mu music if you didn't want to. But it sounds like uh, that's not the case. I don't know. No, it's not the case at all. Not the case at all. Uh, we became independent on, I think, uh, like our fourth album, the Happy Album. We've had it with record companies. We've had nothing but disasters 
uh, with record companies. And uh, we decided to go independent, but that was sort of a brand new model for us, and we probably didn't work it as well as we could. You know, we've pretty much stayed sort of independent since then. There are new opportunities for musicians to make a living with YouTube licenses and things like that, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it's harder for anyone starting out, and I really, you know, sort of worry for, for new young artists who are all fantastic, but I think, well, how are you going to make any money out of all this Spotify and YouTube and, yeah. you know? I, I know. A bit depressing, actually. So. Yeah, me too. I recently talked to Mark Gable of Choir Boys. Do you oh, remember? Mark, I've got some shows coming up with Mark very uh, soon, actually. Yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah, we, wow. have a band, we have a thing called Absolutely 80s that is a bunch of uh, rotating singers who you know had hits in Australia. Not all of them have had hits overseas. And Mark is one of those in that lineup, and he's a real uh, interesting guy. Uh, he's a, yeah. Uh, a bit of a historian of Australian music in some ways. You know, you can ask him about yes. pretty much anyone, and he's a very interesting guy to talk to, as well as being an amazing singer, of course. Yes. Mm-hmm. He and I were talking recently. I thought it was really interesting, that, and he said something very similar, which, again, I guess coming from an American perspective, it's so big and vast that a, a hit song just kind of pays you back over and over again. But he was saying mm-hmm. that his song, I was surprised to learn that their song, Run to Paradise, Mm-hmm. was the 11th highest-selling single of the 80s in Australia. And mm-hmm. that, to me, means you've struck gold. You know, you're set for life. But he was explaining that Australia, not being that heavily populated, it's not as big a you know, a financial driver as you might think that it was. That's exactly and so you right, saying this because... about Angel is kind of, I guess that's fitting the same story. Well, a, a hit in the, a gold record in Australia, I think, to this day is still only uh, thirty-five thousand copies. You know, so <laughs> the, the public perception—you know—you you hear that you've got a gold, they hear you've got a gold record, they think that you're loaded with money. And the fact yeah. is, thirty-five thousand copies—you haven't recouped yet, you haven't paid for your video, let alone the cost of your album or your producer or whatever. So, uh, even platinum is only seventy-five thousand. Um, so oh, wow. you, but Australian, Australian artists have always had to break out of Australia and to sort of uh, have some success overseas purely for that reason, that, that if you can have the same amount of percentage of the population who like you in Australia, like you in America or Europe, mm-hmm. well, it's way many, many, many more people. Wow. I'm wrapping my brain around the difference, and it, there really Ooh. is a, a stark contrast there. I don't know anything about the synth-pop culture, I assume it, I mean, everything I read refers to it as new romantic, which is what was going on in the UK in the late 70s, early Mm -hmm. 80s, that would have birthed things like Stand Up LA and Duran Duran, but what was going on in Australia, did you guys feel like, were there other bands doing what you were doing, or did you feel like you were doing something really unique at the time? Uh, I don't even know. I don't know enough about Australian alternative music history, you know? Well, there, there were some other bands set out on the same course. I think it was the it's kind of post-punk kind of thing in that punk shook everything up and was fantastic. Mm-hmm. But then there mm-hmm. were people who could perhaps play a little bit more and wanted to, to sort of go a bit further than those three chords. Bands like Real Life is a band called Ice House that you may have heard of mm-hmm. in the U.S.
Um, I love ourselves. I mean, sure. Is it, bank, is it a bank called Models at all? Ah, models, love models. Yes. Okay. Catch Me On Falling has been a bit of a hit in America as well. 
and we went over to America to open for the Eurythmics. We did about 32 shows oh, really? with uh, Eurythmics, which was pretty okay. amazing, interesting. And I remember just going, the first show we, opened, we, we, we played was uh, in Washington, and um, I just couldn't believe that uh, I was on the other side of the world, in America, pretty much for the first time, and all these Americans were singing, send me names at me. I was like, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> that must <laughs> so have been mind-blowing. It was. So we did this whole yeah. tour with the Eurythmics, which I'm like a huge fan of. Uh-huh. And uh, then we sort of, we went through Canada pretty much on our own. And by the time we were three quarters of the way through Canada, we'd learned that Send Me an Angel would hit number one in Germany and other, other cities in Europe as well. Yeah. And then we had to come down the East Coast all the way again with Berlin. Who was who Oh, sure. Yeah. And I've just, yeah. I've just done a tour with Terry over here in Australia. All of a sudden, we were number one in Europe, and this uh, tour that we're on was going to never end. And we had to go straight over to, to Germany, where Angel was number one for a month. I remember the funny thing about it, you're having the number one record. Congratulations, boys. You're number one in uh, Germany here, but uh, we had no money. Can you lend us some money or take us out to dinner or buy us? Oh. <laughs> that makes no sense. <laughs> I know. But that's the way it was, you know. Congratulations, you're number one. You know, oh, can you buy us some dinner? <laughs> <laughs> right, we're starving. We might be number yeah. one, but hungry. Yes, oh, exactly. But, but it was a lot of fun, and we did all those naughty things that bands do. You know, there's, you know, a lot of debauchery and a lot of drinking and just fun sure. and playing. And it was it was a wonderful time. It was you know very happy time. It was good fun. I've never asked this before, but I'm going to ask you: What city or what location was the most fun to be debaucherous in? Oh, God, that's, that's just too hard, gee. Anywhere if in America. If that's incriminating, you don't have to answer it, but I just, uh, I just I'll tell I'm you just what, curious. I'll tell you what, when people, you're, in, you're in L.A. and you're playing a gig, and, and they all think they're so cool in L.A., you know, they think they know uh-huh. everything and they've got it all there, and you tell them that you're going to Salt Lake City for the next week, and they say, oh, don't go up there, you know, you, you'll have no fun, you can't drink, and you can't do this, and you can't do that. Well, okay. it's completely the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more about no, Salt Lake City. I've, I've had way too much fun in Salt Lake City. Way too much really? fun. Really? Yeah. That right. is crazy. You know, I had Johnny Vatos on here, who's the drummer for Oingo Boingo. Okay. And Oingo Boingo is another one of those bands that were huge in Salt Lake City, in Utah. One of the last of gigs they played before they broke up was in Salt Lake. And Johnny said very similar things, that even though it's, you know, the Mormon capital or whatever, People there love to party, and there is like a there's a kind of a subculture that no one knows about that really Mm -hmm. likes to get down. That is amazing. Oh, Oh, I'm kind of glad to hear that. Good. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And Oingo Boingo, one of my favorite bands too. The singer is Danny Offman. You know, I know he's done very well with his his soundtracks and everything, but God, I miss his voice. He's got such a beautiful, beautiful voice. You know, I wish he'd he'd bring out an album where he sings again. Yes, and just his creativity. I mean, I don't know. I don't know that people at the time were. I don't know if we were ready or equipped to fully embrace the creativity that he was bringing to pop music at the time. And those mm. albums hold up so well. Boingo Boingo is mm. amazing, and I just well, I'm real, sad there's not more out there. Like Have you met any of your heroes over the years? Have you been able to? You know, I'm, I don't know. I'm no good at I'm no good at meeting uh, I'm no good at meeting rock stars. As a matter of fact, speaking of Danny Elfman, I went to, I was taken to see him 
by the head of his record company at the Greek Theatre one time to see Ongo Boingo and then introduced really? me. I said, bow, 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 bow. I hid from Annie Lennox for 32 shows. I was too terrified you did? to hear her. I, I thought I was going to ask you what Annie Lennox was like, but you managed to just not even get to know her after all that? I hid. <laughs> And then, and then, when as I mentioned, we'd finished that tour, we went through Canada, and then we had to come down through uh, the American East Coast again with Berlin. Well, I hid from Terry Nunn as well. I thought, I've started this now, I might as well keep doing it. Yeah. Uh, I, I had my first conversation with uh, Terry really only a couple of months ago when I came oh out and, apolog- and apologized, and I said, look, I'm sorry, but I was hiding. <laughs> wow. What? Yeah. You've been a rock star for 30-something years, and you could have... Uh, I, don't feel, I don't feel like a rock star at all. But uh, yeah. who else did I meet? Um, we got to tour with the Thompson Twins, and Tom Bailey and oh, I were that. lovely people. They were very nice people. One of my biggest heroes was actually the guy who produced our first album, Steve Hillage, who was really? a legendary English guitar player in a band called Gong, but then where I first really came to know of him was he produced two of the early Simple Minds albums that are my favourites with a love song on them. That's uh, right. So I to have, about um, that. So to get to work with Steve and, you know, hear some stories, and he's an amazing, you know, wonderful musician. And yes. it, uh, to this day, he's, he's out making electronic music with his partner, Maket Girardi, and they have a, a band called System 7. legendary um, hippie guitar player has just influenced electronic music so much, you know, and he still does. He's an amazing That's guy. That's amazing. Wow, I wouldn't have mm. pieced all that together. I knew the yeah. name and I remember the Simple Minds connection, but I didn't know all that other stuff. That's fascinating. Okay, so something I've been curious about, you know, 89, Send Me an Angel, 89 comes out, it's a big hit. The next album comes out in 1990, Lifetime. Mm-hmm. This is probably mm-hmm. your attempt, I'm, or you and the label's attempt to sort of capitalize on a new wave of acceptance and popularity that you're achieving. And mm-hmm. the album's good, but I hear that it didn't do much. Is that right? No, that's true. Uh, that's true. There's also, if I can mention, there was a bridging song before that called Baby. Yeah, man. 
we started having K-Rock and dance hits, which I was actually very comfortable with because I always wanted to be, I thought a little bit, real life was perhaps a little bit too commercial for me and I wanted to be a little bit darker. Really? Yes, I did. And uh, that was, that was huh. me, not our, not our original keyboard player, Richard Zatorsky. Richard was the commercial balance for me and I wanted to go a bit darker. And then when Richard sort of uh, left the band, I sort of had full reign of sort of being a bit more alternative. So it's probably all my fault. Um, but oh. we had a British song called Babies that was a, a hit on yep. K-Rock. Great song. Um, and it's a great, it's a great song, yes. But um, yes. our local record company in Australia decided it was offensive. It, you know, it's an anti-war song. And they just decided it was offensive. So the rumour in Australia was that we'd broken up and we're going, but no, 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 we're number three on the K-Rock chart in America. Right. We're doing fine. And uh, that was a very strange thing to happen. So then as I mentioned... As I mentioned, our record company in Australia was liquidated, and we just, we signed directly to our American record company. And the first single uh, of of the, the Lifetime album was a song called "God Tonight," which is a great yep. tune, and yep. it, uh, it it just went straight up the K Rock charts. And and the record company thought, "Well, wow, this is great. Real life are back. No worries. It's all fine now." And uh, the Gulf War broke out. The first Gulf War broke out. Right. And some of the independent promoters of the record in America said, uh, David, on this song you've got the words at the end, to hell with money, to hell with guns, to hell with poverty, death and drugs, to hell with hell, to hell with hate, to hell with fear, to hell with AIDS. And they said, you know what, that sounds a little bit anti-American. <laughs> what? Really? <laughs> it wasn't the message that it seemed the American people wanted to hear when the Gulf War broke out <laughs> and, you know. Oh, uh, yeah, we're just all so angry. We can't take a little positive message. And uh, yeah, so what? Um, that was just one thing that people told me, and, and all of a sudden the promotion on the record was just abandoned. And instead of going from K Rock into the Billboard Hot One, you know, they, instead of promoting it through there, they just dropped it like a hot potato. So uh, it wasn't really the fault of the song. It was a damn fine song. And, yeah, it is. And then, Great. And then the next one off that was a song called Kiss the Ground that um, yep. was a cool little tune as well. But once again, it, uh, we charted on the K-Rock charts and the dance charts and the college charts, but not the Billboard Hot 100. So yeah. that was it for us then, really. And um, yeah. I was quite, I was very proud of those songs. I was, these are great. I'm, I love these songs. Uh, yeah. That's when we decided, okay, we're going to go independent from now on and you know, shot ourselves in the foot again, I guess. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, Lifetime's a great album. My favorite song on there is uh, Rescue Me.
Oh, um, yeah. Well, ooh, here's a story. Oh, bring um, it. Yeah, let's hear it. Okay. Well, also, um, back when, when an Australian artist had a hit song in America, there was this pressure to go, the, from the record companies going, we don't know how you did that, but you got lucky with that one. Now, we don't oh. want you to do that again because we don't want you to sort of you know, trick the American people with this strange new sound you have. So we want you to go and write with a local writer. And really? uh, you go, oh, okay, this is what A&R, how A&R works. So I better sit down mm-hmm. with a, a, a popular writer from over there and reimagine my whole sound and my whole style of songwriting. Sure. So I was sent out one day to meet a very lovely man, and I had no disrespect for this guy called Dennis Lambert. Oh, I've heard that um, name. How do I know that yes, name? Yes, he's a... Oh, you will. He's a co-writer from We Built the City on Rock and Roll, which is sadly uh, often voted one of the worst songs in history. So, I had so Martin I had Page on here, who's the other writer of that song. Martin Page was a guest of mine last year. Yes. Okay. So, yes. We talked about So that. I just felt out of my depth with Dennis. You know, no disrespect at all, but I just thought, well, uh, this is not kind of where I envisaged our sound going, but hey, I sat down and we wrote Rescue Me, and that's Dennis oh, no. coming through there. So I like the song yeah. that you probably have bitter feelings for. I'm sorry. No, I, no, I don't. Not at all. I, I, I sort of, I, it was an, a, a very interesting experience for me to sort of go through all that oh. to sort of please the company and end up coming up with sure. a song anyway, and you know, met Dennis and hear some amazing stories from him. And, uh, oh, but that's what it. happened. You know, just about every Australian writer sort of said, well, you know, we, we need to get you to write some proper songs now. <laughs> You've had mm-hmm. it accidentally. Oh, Don't man. do it again. Yeah, <laughs> you are capable of doing it on your own. We have to help you. You know, there's that seven-year gap then after Lifetime um, mm-hmm. before Happy comes around. What are you mm-hmm. doing in that seven years? And see, this is what I was kind of implying earlier. To me, I'm thinking, well, they just struck it big with Send Me an Angel they're, they now have the freedom to make music when they want, how they want, but it sounds like that's not really what was going on. No, no the, well, I, I, got, I started getting involved in having to sort out the liquidation of our record company. You go, look, mm-hmm. you know, what's going on? You, may, you own the chairs and the offices and you own, like, the label, but you have no control over our rights as, with, as the artist. You're still obliged to pay royalties uh, on anything yeah. that's possibly coming in. So that was um, uh, 11 years and six lawyers to sort that part oh, out. Boy. And I became a bit consumed by it. I was like so angry that people were going, oh, look, don't worry about it, there's no money. You know, we'd, we'd sold millions and millions of records all over the world and people were saying, oh, forget about it. And the song wasn't going away. You know, The song had had a second life. There was always people yeah. covering the song. And I just became consumed by trying to sort the whole thing out. And the quality of lawyers uh, here relating to the music business wasn't very good. No one knew what to do. And I just let too much time go. I also, you know, I was broke as well. Everything that was coming in was only my publishing coming in, and it wasn't all that much either. I threw it at lawyers. And I had to look at doing something else for a living. And my other love was photography. So I, I started having a couple of exhibitions of sort of surrealist, black and white images that I'd sort of printed and developed and everything myself. And then I got involved a bit. Then bands wanted me to take their photos and then some fashion people got a hold of me and wanted me to do some stuff like that. So I sort of did that for a while, but my first love was still music. And, you know, after those seven years sort of thing, I was was just so frustrated. And I said to the guys, look, 
let's just record. Let's just record something ourselves. People are doing stuff yeah. independently these days. Let's try it and see what happens. So, yeah, that was a delay. It was really just trying to sort wow. a huge mess out. So, no holidays, so no fast cars. No. <laughs> I mean, it's the uh, complete opposite of what I've had in my mind, honestly. I'm assuming that you're yeah. high on the hog finally. You made it. No, but in reality, no, you're so no, bogged no, no. down in all this political garbage that it's having the opposite effect. When you Absolutely. And also, also, you know, when the 80s effect. was ended, there was a huge backlash here for what they called haircut bands. That we, were, you know, honestly thought I was never going to work again. There was so much um, yeah. uh, vitriol about putting down 80s bands from all over the world. And I thought, wow, gee, that's it. But right. you know, I really better be looking at something else. And strangely enough, for me. When we like first started, Richard and I were going to just become songwriting partners and not, and write for other people. There was, I never had any ambition to be uh, in a in a successful band, and I certainly wasn't had no ambition of being a singer. It was just that I ended up writing the words and got put. We couldn't find a singer, so I ended up being the accidental singer. You know, maybe that's part of the reason I was hiding from people like Annie Lennox. I just didn't feel. You know, up mm. to their standard. You know. Yeah. And so I sort of resented this kind of rock star treatment to a certain extent but then all of a sudden in the 90s uh, when it was taken away this thing that I didn't want it hurt it hurt me deeply mm-hmm. so uh, wow. got over that <laughs> yeah I got over it but you know it's really strange you know the this roller coaster ride that you're on you know the highs and the lows yeah. and they're yeah. both extreme mm. Wow, that's so. So then, then finally, towards the 2000s, you know, people started to get get nostalgic and go, "Oh, we yeah, those that's what was, bands. we were happy back yeah. then. Why can't we hear them again?" So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I mean, I think uh, from what I, I, you know, this is only my own perception. I'm assuming there's a pretty vibrant nostalgia circuit out there that would just Ooh. devour having real life on the bill any anywhere and any time, right? Well, pretty. We have a big hotel, a big circuit that runs all year round. That you find that um, most Australian kind of bands, you know, heritage sort of bands, whether they're rock and roll or of any era, mm-hmm. are on. And I've been on a couple of big shows this year, and we're all just pinching ourselves that we've got so much work. Even with with Mark Gable, who you mentioned earlier, we get together and yeah. we have play these big shows where there's about twenty artists. You only sing about two songs. We're all there. We're all doing well with our music and we're, we're finally getting paid and uh, it's like a school reunion. We're having a great old time. I'm, this is the happiest Good. time of my life and my musical career at the moment. Really? So, wow. Yes, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. well, I am totally glad to hear that. I mean, I, I'm just <laughs> yeah, shocked. Negative story, with all the negative things that are, that are the truth of the career and that I have to say to people, this is the best time of my life. I've just finished a tour called Totally 80s, where we had Martika was headlining, yeah. and then there was Berlin, and then there was the lovely Lamal from Kajigugu. Yes. We had Katrina from Katrina and the Waves, yes. and we had Ivan from Men Without Hats, and we were selling out these Love it. Uh, beautiful theatres all around Australia. It was pretty much sold out all around the place. We did about 14 shows together, and Amazing. it was just a great time. We had a ball. It was wonderful. That's amazing. Now, I, why is Martika... Headlighting that if she has one hit. Oh, well, a couple of hits, really. I mean, she had uh, Toy Soldiers and then the beautiful, beautiful, beautiful Love They Will Be Done.
Done was one that was co-written with Prince, and from the oh, opening sentence, right. from the opening sentence and the opening melody, you're just you're gone. It's a hit. It's a hit. It's beautiful. Okay. So, and okay. she doesn't she doesn't work very much. She doesn't like being a rock star, and she came out to Australia just because it was kind of so far away. And she says back home people don't even. She lives in Chicago. People don't even know who I am anymore, and she she loves that. But she's really? wonderful, gorgeous, you know, lovely person. Yeah. She's another one I've been trying to get on the show. I just find mm-hmm. stories like that fascinating, you know what I mean? Where do these people go? Mm-hmm. How do they look back on their lives? Forgive me if this is too insensitive. I'm just trying to kind of wrap my brain around the level. Go on, be insensitive. Come on, be okay. insensitive. Okay, okay, okay. I'll be insensitive then. Does, uh, <laughs> I love that you said that. Does doing, I mean, how many shows like that, how many tours like that would you need to do in a year to live as comfortably as you want to live? Well, a whole lot less than than back in the day, because I think back in when when Angel was number one all, all around the place, we were on about four hundred dollars a week, and oh. uh, now I'm I'm sort of you know I do about sixty shows a year, and I'm you know well paid, you know I get paid very mm-hmm. well. I don't have to work too hard. There's safety in numbers because there's you know a, you know three or four singers, different lineups of the things to, to keep it exciting all the time. Between about those that many shows. And uh, with my publishing coming in, uh, all the, uh-huh. I've cleared up all the the block roadblocks in you know, royalty nice. situations. Um, yeah, I, like a modest living. I don't sort of own a flash car or a house or anything, but I have no debt and I'm healthy. And um, yeah, I'm in a great spot. So, but uh, and I love I love the fact that with these shows, there's safety in numbers. You know, I think if mm-hmm. I took out a version of real life on its own. Uh, I could probably do a couple of weeks of shows and then people would be bored again. So it's mm-hmm. it's great going out with all these other people who are all fabulous, all survivors, and we've got this great show that we put on. You know, it's two hours of hit after hit after hit. It's Wonderful. awesome. Uh, mm. it sounds like and we're all great friends now, too. We're, there's great camaraderie Good. there. Mm. Yeah, I would imagine you guys all probably get to know each other. You're, it's kind of, you know, the same pool of... 50 to 100 bands or whatever are being invited to do these kinds of things. You guys probably know each other. Do you ever play really? on these 80s tours outside of Australia? Or are you at a yeah, point I right now where you just you stay put where you are and you're comfortable doing that? I am actually very comfortable just staying here because I have done the, the uh, Lost 80s tours with Flock of Seagulls and um, mm-hmm. uh, When in Rome and those people. And usually for me it's like a long journey to L.A., and then, like, two weekends of work. And, you know, you can't work on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday or something. So it's a long way, and it pays fairly well, and it's fun. But it's just, like, too far. I can do that all the time here. I don't need to sort of That's go there. Yeah. As much as I'd like to, it's just such a long journey. You know? Sure. That's why I asked. I mean, just logistically, it's going to be a bigger pain to get you out there, even though the crowds would love it. If you're making all that you're comfortable with, I mean... 
obviously, like you said, you're happier than you've ever been, and that's just mm-hmm. with playing out there locally. You don't have to mm-hmm. break your back doing anything else if you don't want to. Mm-hmm. At this point. And we work, we work all year round, you know, uh, rain, hail, and shine, you know, summer, winter. And I know, I mean, there's, there's a touring season over in the U.S. For, for people like us, sort of what you call heritage acts, I guess. And there's mm-hmm. sort of the final weekend has just been, hasn't it? It's pretty much the end of August. is the last weekend before everyone goes back to school or whatever and the holidays are over. And sure. there's, there's not really an opportunity for people like me to go over there in, during the winter season. Yeah, so, yeah, that makes sense. Mm. Okay. Mm. Now, i got to ask you about the, your last album, the Covers mm-hmm. album. That's a really genius oh, yeah, idea. yeah. I didn't even know about that one until recently, and I found and it's on Spotify, and it's a lot of fun. Okay, so I'll just be candid with you. So many artists right now are doing covers albums, and mm-hmm. I think it's because there's a real hunger for it. You know, there's a market where people are wanting, you know, if Rod Stewart can make four albums of crappy, you know, whatever they were, standards, and make millions of dollars off of it, then real life should be able to put some great music back out there, even if they are covers. So, what's going in? What's the motivation for doing this? Okay. Well, one of the reasons that uh, you may or may not know of is that uh, usually, if you've had a big big hit song, there's a six-year period before you're allowed to re-record it again. There's a there's so, a six year period, did you say? Yeah, that's usually part of a contract that if, you, if you've got a you know, you, you you can record after six years, and you're not with that label anymore, you can legally record whatever you like that was on that label. Really? So oh. it's a nice opportunity for some people to re-record their biggest hit. Of course, it's never going to be the same as the original. Yeah, squeeze But hey, it's yeah. all yours this time, so you own it this time. Secondly, that, that's Cleopatra Records that do that, and they're a great company. I love them. They're so totally musical. Their accounting is fabulous. And they offer you, I think it's a, a, bu- a budget. I won't say exactly how much it is. It's not huge. They came out and said, we want you to do a covers record. You want to do it? Here's the figure. And I thought, well, wow. I mean, of course I can't do it because I'm not a very good producer or engineer. But I said, I said yes, yes. My mouth said yes, but my brain was screaming no. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And but I thought, hey, that's a whole new, you know, uh, studio. It's like a new Macintosh computer, and it's a set of monitors, and it's this, that, and the other thing. And I thought, I'll give it a shot. So sure. I did that, and it it came out half okay. I learned a lot of stuff doing it. I learned a lot of things uh, about really? recording that I didn't know. And huh. um, I got a whole new studio, and it recouped, and it, it pays me well every year. They're a great company, Cleopatra. I'm very happy. Oh, with that. nice, nice. Mm. Okay. Mm. Now, so when and you I, play I out... The, oh, go ahead. Yeah. So I guess what that's a motivation for a lot of people to record that thing. They go, well, yeah. here's a budget, and I can buy this, this, and this, and I get to make a record of some of my favorite songs, and it's excellent. Yeah. Definitely. Sorry. Yeah. Did you pick the songs, or did someone yeah. advise you to take the... Okay, so you picked them. I did ask advice, but pretty much I had to find stuff that, well, one, I loved, and two, that I could sing that would sort of... I could that yeah. would be okay with my voice. So. Yeah, fit your voice. Yeah. I know now that you mentioned yeah. opening up for the Eurythmics, it makes sense to have Sweet Dreams on there. Some of them want to abuse you Some of them want to abuse you 
was probably oh, uh, a callback to the old days, right? Of course, yes, yes. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm trying to think. I mean, we covered most of the... Oh, I remember what I was going to ask you. Um, so mm-hmm. when you go play out now, like, for instance, I was I was chatting with Clive Farrington from When in Rome because mm-hmm. he's been on this show now. He's been on the show, my podcast, too. We're Facebook friends, and he's playing in this Lost 80s show I'm going to see. And he was saying they only get 10 minutes. So I'm guessing he's going to sing, like, two or three songs. It's a greatest mm-hmm. hits show, as they say. Mm-hmm. So when you go out and play... Obviously, you got to play Simeon Angel. Mm-hmm. Do you p- cherry pick from the whole catalog, or are you going mostly, you know, Heartland and Flame? What do you? What's a what's a typical set list for you now? I'm pretty much uh, here. It's about like four of my own uh, songs, which is always pretty much usually um, Angel, Catch Me, I'm Falling, Face to Face, from the second album. If you've listened to the podcast, you may know what these are. So, number one, I want to know. What, I want to know what your biggest regret is. If there was ever something, a decision you made, not so much something that happened to you, but if there was something that you had done, if you had done something differently, it would have changed the course of your career. And then I just want to know what just the tastiest, coolest, greatest memory you have when you look back over 35 years as a, you know. I'll say a rock star if you're not comfortable saying it. Mm. Well, I guess the the regret is probably in some of my writing in that I did want to head left instead of right, in that mm. I should have focused on, you know, you know, I did love having, you know, Send Me an Angel and Catch Me on Falling as hits, and instead of taking a left turn, uh, I should have stayed in perhaps in the middle and uh, worked a bit harder at being, you know, more top 40 orientated. Really? Instead of trying to try, yeah, instead of trying to be more like the Cure or Depeche Mode or New Order or something, you know, I perhaps should have stayed with what I was good at as a writer. I think. So you you think that? Oh, sorry to cut you off. Sorry to cut you off. What's that? You think those songs? I mean, especially the first couple albums, Heartland and Heartland and Flame, even mm-hmm. Lifetime to some degree. 
I mean, there's mm-hmm. totally poppy stuff on there that should have been top 40. Did you not think that you were writing top... You thought you were being a little too experimental or a little too avant-garde at the time? Yeah, yeah maybe that. Well, maybe I was listening to too many of those people that said, look, you've got to sit down and write with other people. And I oh. perhaps should have... I perhaps should have written more with other people than than I did. And actually, I do have a funny story here um, that I've, I've currently got the real life website down. And one of the reasons I've done that is to put myself in a position where I'm going to be really embarrassed if I don't put some new songs up there with the new site. Mm-hmm. I've got the new site redone. It's all very cool. And okay. uh, I'm, I'm going to look like a real fool. And that's back in the day too when we'd go to, into a studio uh, to to demo a new song uh, before we had computers. And the band would ring me up, you know, the night before and go, look, David, you know, we're in the studio at 10 o'clock. How's this new song coming on? I'd go, oh, it's uh-huh. fine, it's fine. And there'd be nothing. There'd be nothing on paper. <laughs> but I, I didn't, I'd be such a fool, if I, and I'd have to pay the money for the studio if I didn't have a song by 10 o'clock the next morning. So I always did. So um, so our website's kind of down at the moment because I'm just trying to get some things finished. And I've, I'm excited about a couple of new things that I'm writing. Uh, yeah. But that's the reason I've got that. But, uh, late last year, a friend of mine from the Totally 80s band rang me up one day and said, look, David, David, there's this, uh, the third biggest airline in Australia. It's called Tiger Airways. They need a new song. They've, they've, they've had a bad run with uh, the reputation's not very good, and they need a new song to relaunch themselves. And they want me to do it. Can you help me out? And I went, okay, thinking, well, yeah, as if I'm going to be able to come up with anything. Right. I said, how long have we got? And he said, oh, two days, two days. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like really under the hammer. Once again, uh-huh. I didn't want to seem like a, a fool. And lo and behold, it was the winning bid. Really? So, um, yeah. So I wrote the the song, and my friends sang it, and we got paid handsomely. And it's yes. uh, embarrassing, but funny. But there you go. So I, I sort of went, well, I can write songs if I really have that's to. That's great. I can still write if I have to. So that that's when I said, great. okay, I'm going to pull the site down, and I'm going to write some new songs and put them up. So there is new, uh, potentially going to be new real life music down the line. Yeah, there is. I'm working on it all the okay. time. The thing is, you know, once again, it's finishing stuff and going, well, what's the incentive? Will I actually make anything out of this? Because I do like yeah. making money out of what I do. So, yeah. yeah, but there is. I might sort of do something very silly because um, I have a history of doing silly things. Uh, I might mm-hmm. just put it out on vinyl and say, no, it's not on Spotify. Nope. It's there you iTunes. go. You can, only, you can only buy it on vinyl. That's hot right now. Yeah. Yeah. That's a hot way to do I it. Know, yeah. Very cool. I know. The only, the only thing is, is, is the, the, the setting up process is very expensive, you know, so. Yeah, that's And true. I'd have to buy a turntable. I'd have to buy a turntable myself to play it. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe you said that. I purposely don't own a turntable for this very reason, because I collect CDs. I've got thousands of CDs, and I just do not trust myself that if I bought a turntable, I wouldn't go twice as bananas buying old records. And so I just, uh, you know, I just don't do it. There's like a couple of generations now who've never sat down with the brand new Pink Floyd record or a brand new Beatles record and put it on for the first time with their friends and drank coffee and read every word on the on the copy of the cover and tried to wonder out what's going on. Is there any hidden messages in here? And, yes. You know, it's amazing. So. I know it's very romantic right now, and I'm every day I'm tempted, but I don't do it. So the the commercial though that you wrote. 
so that's a common thread, a common topic that comes up here a lot. But it, it's interesting because I talk to a lot of people who, during maybe lulls in their career, and this is usually around kind of the 80s, the, probably when you're at the height, late 70s, early 80s, they, they start singing jingles, and they mm -hmm. make a lot of money doing that. And that mm. industry has really dried up for a lot of them. But you mm. are finding success now writing a new jingle. Mm -hmm. I assume that the financial part of it all works the same, where as long as that ad runs and is a viable ad, you're going to be capitalizing. Yeah, that's, that's true. It was something I never wanted to look for. I know some people that, that do that for a living, and I hear yeah. the, the stories of frustration of dealing with managers, you know, kind of corporate people who don't have a clue, don't really have a clue about music, and they can't make up their mind about anything. And that happened with this one as well. That they all got in and went, oh, this, 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 and this, and I kept changing everything they wanted. And it, they ended up back where I started, pretty much. Uh, yeah. And it's not, it's not a, a song that I'm proud of. It's nothing like the style that I'd write normally. Sure. So I've actually never wanted to to get into that. And this was purely by accident. And I'm you know, if I went out looking for that sort of work now, I'd probably not have the instant success that I had with that one. So I'd be frustrated yeah. and disappointed. And I'm much happier sure. doing what I do, doing Good. the other stuff. So, well, it's a nice yeah. little, yeah. you know, nice little manna from heaven, some mailbox money to, that you've earned. So, what's your yes, favorite memory? What's your when you uh, look uh, back? Well, what's it's a, the it's a funny story. Okay, it's a funny story more than anything. Oh, good. It's, um, okay. We were recording, this must have been about 1985, and we were recording in a studio called Zomba Studios in London in Wilsdon Green. And I'd stepped outside for a little while, you know, just for a break, out to the car park. And I was out, I got chatting to some English guy out there, and we are having a bit of a chat. And there was this pink old Volkswagen Beetle parked in the car park, and this gorgeous girl came out and uh, got in the Volksy and couldn't get it to start. And she eventually sort of said to me and this other guy, said, you know, guys, can you give me a bit of a push start, please? Sure. And we said, of course we can, of course. So here's me and this other guy pushing her down the main street of Wilson Green till her Volksy started. Uh -huh. uh, and the thing is, the girl in the car was Sade, the British No! Girl. Really? And the guy helped me. Then the guy, I was laughing with the other guy, and he says, you know, what's your name? And I said, oh, Dave. He said, oh, my name's Mutt Lang. So, what? You were chit-chatting <laughs> with Mutt Lang, and yeah, Sade didn't know it was, need you to help her. And, and we, we were pushing her Volkswagen. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. Oh, man. Do you happen to, was he there at the studio working on something, too? Probably what? Yeah, he was he was working on something. It wasn't Def Leppard or something like that, but he was he was working on something. He was a really lovely bloke. He just sort of we just got chatting, and you know, I didn't have a clue who he was until he'd introduced himself afterwards. <laughs> wow. Yeah, he's kind of a mysterious figure. There's only like really old photos. No one really knows what he looks like. Oh, that is crazy. Cool. Yeah, oh, yeah. he's a lovely guy. Cool. He's a lovely guy, and you know, of course, my jaw dropped when you know he told me because he produced ACDC and he produced yes. Death Leopard, and he, he was kind of married to Shania Twain, wasn't he? I think. Yes, he was. Uh, they broke up. He had an affair with somebody, uh, oh, a friend of hers, or a nanny, or something like that. I don't remember. Oh, that yeah. seems to be the guy, doesn't it? The nanny. It's the nanny. Yeah. Was it the nanny? Yeah. Oh, I yeah, know, but it's it's uh, there's some other people that are blaming the nannies. A lot these days. Oh yeah, that happens all the time, right? 
Ben Affleck yeah, did yeah. it. Robin Williams did it. Yeah, lots of. It's, yeah. <laughs> you should yeah, only hire Arnold, really gross nannies, I guess. If, if that's even what Arnold Schwarzenegger did yeah. it. Snort, snort. That's right. <laughs> Had that kid with <laughs> the nanny. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, well, can uh, you remember like what was the coolest? Can you remember a particular show that you played? Oh, I don't yeah. even care where it would have been, but like the best. Oh, okay. No, there's one that was that remains. You know, there's probably, you know, if I sat down with with the guys from the band, you would would, would all pull out the same, you know, three or four or five shows over, you know, hundreds of shows that we didn't go. That was just amazing. Well, there was uh-huh. one. Uh, was we were promoting the Happy Album, and we we're over in, yes. in the states, and we went to Chicago. It was going to be the last show of the tour. And um, these young young guys, young Hispanic guys, we didn't realize there was a huge Hispanic area in Chicago, but of course there is. We didn't know that. Uh, these young Hispanic guys came and picked us up, and they were, you know, they said, "Oh, you know, real life, well, great, you know, you're playing our show tonight." And it was they they booked us because because they wanted to hear God tonight. God tonight was a big thing. It wasn't from you know, okay. Jacob, well, it was just cool. Okay, we are like we're taking you to the best hotel in Chicago, and uh, we hear you like uh, vodka, and we hear you like bourbon. So here's these two flasks of each, and uh, they took us to this gorgeous hotel in Chicago, and they said, "Okay, we've got to go back to school now." And uh, yeah, school, and we're going to have the biggest, the best limousine in Chicago pick you up later this afternoon and take you down to Soundcheck. And we thought, "Wow, this is great!" Amazing. And uh, they booked this uh, huge theatre for us in a very rough part of town. It was you know, very, very rough, but the, the biggest museum came and got us and took us down to Soundcheck, and we got to this gig, and there was nothing on the stage. There was no PA, there was no gear, because we, we'd travel without backline, we'd pick up drums uh-huh. and amplifiers we were there. So all of a sudden, our jaws dropped, and we thought, wow, these kids have done everything great so far, and there's no PA here. Yeah. And all of a sudden... You know, one of the little Mexican uncles who plays in a mariachi band arrives with the band's equipment. <laughs> so we had this really daggy drum kit and a couple of really crappy amps, a very ordinary PA, and this show was, like, apparently sold out. And, you know, the, the kids looked around and saw our shock at what was happening, and their faces fell, and they were so... They thought, oh, do you realize, what have we done, what have we done? <laughs> And uh, we we going on, don't worry, it's all, it's all fine, we'll make do with this, with the PA and the amps and stuff. Uh-huh. So then the stretch limousine took us back to the uh, 
the the hotel to so we could sort of you know powder our noses and get ready sure. for the gig and came and got us again. We got to the show and we all had to go through. It was, it was packed and we had to go through body detectors, and they really? even had one of the other. Yeah, we had some metal detectors. Well, body detectors, metal detectors. Right. So even we had to go through the metal detectors because it was so dangerous and rough this part of town. They even had one of their uncles was an off-duty policeman who was going to be standing with me all over the stage. So wherever I went, the the off-duty policeman was beside really? me. I think I, I think he even had a I think he even had a gun, and so the show's going the show's going great, and we get to the song that they're all waiting for, God tonight, and halfway through the whole power cuts out. Halfway oh. through, everything stops. Everything just stops. They finally get it back together again, and we thought, well, they're here for God tonight. We'll just start that one again, and we get halfway through it again, and bang, the power goes off. No. So. The poor, the poor guys that were running the show were practically in tears. But we're having the t- the band are having the time of our lives because the audience is amazing. I've never felt so much love coming from a bunch really? of people. And I, I, one of my big regrets in life, uh, I should have said before, is I did not stage dive that night. I've never stage dived in my life, but I wish I had that night. <laughs> that would have been I the one to the, do. <laughs> then I think the fat, the fat policeman might have done the same thing and hurt some people as well. Yes. Oh man. So this, this gig just went off, and for all the wrong reasons, it was one of the most amazing nights of, of our life, of the whole band's life. And wow. uh, these kids were sort of, you know, they they were so wonderful, and they put everything into this show, and they were sort of sort of embarrassed. And we said, no, no, we've just had the best time ever, you guys. Thank yeah. you. It was amazing. Yeah, I was, was sure that you were going to tell me at some point that they picked up the wrong band from the airport or whatever, and that you. It was all a big mistake, but that's a way better yeah. story. So interesting. Yeah. It was all about the equipment and, you know, their uncle and, you know, the power going. Yeah. Yeah, it was still one of the best shows ever wow. in my life. I love it. I'd oh, go back and great. do that again. If I had a time machine, if I owned a TARDIS, that's where I'd go. Oh, fascinating. Oh, that's great. Great story. Okay. I remembered one more thing I wanted to ask you. I'm Neil Finn, I know it's New Zealand, not Australia, but Neil Finn's my favorite songwriter ever have you ever come in contact with neil finn uh not really uh on a television show once and though uh they were a little bit uh cool for school for us i mean yeah. we didn't know we were, we were fans of course of, of split ends sure. at the time both the brothers were in split ends uh and we were we sort of wanted to be cool and not sort of make fools of ourselves in front of them. Yeah. And uh, so we didn't get much of a conversation going at all. But uh, yeah. much respect, okay. of course, to them. Much respect. Okay. Yeah. I knew you guys weren't, like, peers. I mean, you were peers that you were both making good music at the same time, but not, you know, in different genres, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, what about Pseudo Echo? Did you ever come oh, up yeah. with Pseudo Echo? Yeah, I've done, I've done lots of shows with them before. Sometimes they're my backing band, even. Really? Um and they they keep playing Send Me an Angel anyway. And I, they play it really? all the time. Oh, yeah. And oh, wow. We did, a show, we did a show with them earlier this year, and, and my, my big joke was, well, they can't play Send Me an Angel tonight because I'm here to do it myself. <laughs> so. <laughs> oh, that's great. I love them. So I've, known, I've known them forever. I've got a show with him just before Christmas, actually. We're doing a show uh, up in Sydney, and Brian's on there as well with the Fido, so, yeah. Oh, great. I loved him. He he was one of the first guests I had on the show, too, and um, I've always loved him, too, so I was curious if you guys had ever crossed paths. 
Have you seen him lately? No. Well, I know he has a gigantic beard because I follow him on yeah. uh, Facebook. <laughs> and I know he's really into motorcycles. Yeah, he, yeah, he has a motorcycle. He's always he's, he's always had a, either a BMX, a dirt bike, or a trail bike, or a motorbike. He's always been a bike nut. So. Oh, has he? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- he's just working this giant beard now. That's I know, good. he looks like a garden gnome because he's not very tall. So oh, really? <laughs> he looks like he should be standing in somebody's garden. Oh, that's classic. Oh, I love it. <laughs> nice. Oh, right on. Well, David, this was huge for me. I just want you to know you've brought a lot of joy into my life. And I'm not just talking about Send Me an Angel. In fact, I like that song, but it's not the most interesting thing about real life to me. And the thought that I'm talking to a guy whose music I have loved for most of my life is huge. So thank you so much for gracing me with your presence. I really, really appreciate it. You're most welcome, Johnny. Most welcome. There you have it, David Sterry. I love that guy. And I got to admit, just selfishly, it is mind-blowing to me that he listens to this podcast on his own accord. I can't believe that. I can't promise that that won't factor into my mind going forward. Instead of what would Jesus do, I'm going to be thinking what would David Sterry want to hear. That's going to that's going to be my mantra. Now, I really struggled with what to play here at the end because they obviously have so many great songs that we didn't even touch on and great albums. And but there are some Latter-day albums that I feel a little guilty we didn't talk about. One of them came out in 1997. It's called Happy. It came up briefly in our conversation. And then another one came out in 2004 called Imperfection. And the song that you're listening to right now is called Another Brick in My Head, and it's from that album. I wanted to showcase some of their other stuff. Those two albums, for their time, were very much contemporary electronic techno music. It does not in any way sound like an 80s band trying to kind of put their spin on something. It is straightforward, modern electronic music for the era. It's really interesting stuff. I hope you guys will check it out. Huge thank you to David. Huge thank you to Yan for producing the podcast. Next week, nothing not to take anything away from David, but we actually have a pretty big guest next week and a very timely guest. Factors into some of the deaths, many deaths that have taken place in 2016. So I hope you'll come back and check that out. If this is your first time joining us, please go into iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. And while you're at it, write us a quick review. Just a quick one. It can be good or bad. I don't care. It just helps other music lovers find the podcast. And then you can also find us on Facebook, and you can like our page. You can send me a message on there. If there's other artists like David that you love that you don't hear enough from, tell me, and I'll see if I can track some of those people down and have them on the show. You can also email me at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter, which admittedly I don't use very well. I don't really know what I'm doing on there, at thehustlepod. Anyway, thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you all next week. something bad love is pumping pushing out heavy times yeah 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 it's something in the air you can't just live your